The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John. I'll remind you once again that the backdrop or the setting for our story that we find ourselves in the middle of here in John 14 is once again the upper room. Jesus has already washed the disciples' feet. He's shared with them the Last Supper, and he's shared some troubling news with them. He told them that he was going to be leaving them, and that where he was going, they couldn't come. And, and this, um, this caused the disciples to be troubled, of course, and they were struggling when Jesus said that. And so he sought to reassure them. And he brought comforting words in the beginning of chapter 14, telling them that I'm going to my Father's house, where I'll prepare a place for you, And if I go to prepare a place, then I'll come back and get you so that we can be together again. And that's kind of where we're picking up and finding our way back into the flow of this dinner conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. He says in verse 4, and you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? (laughs) I love Thomas. He's so honest. (laughs) He was frustrated. He felt like Jesus was always talking in riddles, and he's talking about his father's house and preparing a place, and Thomas is like, look, enough with the parables and the riddles. Just tell us where you're going so we'll know the way. By the way, this is, as many of you know, very characteristic for Thomas. He was always the one who voiced the concerns, the questions, and the doubts of the rest of the group. Those questions that everybody else wanted to ask, but they were too scared to ask, Thomas was the one who would voice those things. And because of his predilection for questioning and doubting, he's earned himself throughout the years the nickname, what? Doubting Thomas. We all know Doubting Thomas. But personally, I think we might be a little too hard on him. After all, at least he was honest, right? He was just voicing the concerns of the whole group. And so perhaps instead of calling him Doubting Thomas, we should start calling him Honest Thomas, or how about Truthful Thomas? And the thing that I love about Thomas is that he reminds us that our doubts don't disqualify us from being disciples. Oh, I love that. That's good news. Why? Because, hey, I'm just like Thomas, (laughs) and maybe you are too. There are days where my faith is strong, and there are other days when it's weak. I struggle, and then I trust. I'm faithful one minute and faithless the next. I'm up and I'm down. I'm just like Thomas, anybody else. (laughs) So that's why I'm thankful for him. And by the way, for those of you who are here tonight and maybe you struggle with doubts and you're not sure where you land on this whole thing, but you're here and you're inquisitive and you're inquiring and you're tuned in and you're listening. And I would just say, if you do have doubts, it might in fact be a sign that you're either on your way to belief or already have belief in Jesus. Why? Because have you ever ever thought about the fact that only true disciples can have doubts? If you never struggle, it's probably an indication of the fact that you're just checked out. You're not uh, even using your mind. You're not thinking about things. All true disciples of Jesus will come against issues that will cause their faith to be tested. And so the issue is not whether or not you have doubts tonight or whether or not you have questions. The issue is where do you take those questions and doubts? And the thing that I love about Thomas 
as he took his question right to the feet of Jesus. And for his part, Jesus doesn't chide his disciple. When Thomas says, Lord, just tell us where you're going, and he interrupts the Lord, Jesus answers him in verse 6 with one of the most beautiful statements concerning himself that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Let's talk for a minute about the narrow way. Jesus essentially says to Thomas, you don't need a map to get where I'm going. Why? Because I am your map. I am the way. Notice how Jesus doesn't say, I'll show you the way, or I'll teach you the truth, or I'll point you in the direction of where you can find life. No, he dares to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's different. Other religious leaders fall into that other category. Buddha himself, did you know this? Buddha called himself the way shower. Muhammad considered himself a teacher of the truth. And nearly all religions claim to be able to point others to where they can find life. But Jesus alone claims to be the authority on truth. He is the life and he is the way. Now, this puts him in rarefied air and it puts him at odds with the world system in which we live, doesn't it? To claim exclusivity like that. I had a philosophy teacher back in college who used to say to us that the religions of the world are like different paths. They, they all start at various points around the bottom of the mountain, but as you ascend the path, you get closer together until the paths all ultimately merge together and converge there at the tip of the mountain where you meet with God. Now, that sounds nice. <laughs> we all maybe even like that to be true, but it doesn't make any logical sense. The truth is, Every religion on earth makes mutually exclusive truth claims that make the others impossible to be simultaneously true. Let's just take the idea of God, for instance. Christians believe in a triune God. Muslims and Jews reject that position. Buddhists don't believe in God at all. And Hindus, for their part, believe in millions of gods. So you see the trouble. As much as people want to say, hey, just coexist, and it's all good, and we all believe the same thing anyways, well, you see how those beliefs can't all be true at the same time. And when it comes to the religions of the world, there are many irreconcilable differences between all of them. However, there is one similarity that all the other religions of the world, barring Christianity, seem to agree on, and that is this. They all start with man. And they talk about man's attempt to reach God. They say, this is the path you need to take. These are the prayers you need to pray. These are the things you need to do to curry God's favor. So in that sense, I guess you could say they all start at the bottom of the mountain. But Christianity is unique. It's different. Because instead of starting with man at the bottom and him making his way to God, it starts with God and him saying that there's an irrevocable, inseparable gulf between God and man, that we could never bridge the gap, we could never climb the mountain. So it starts with God leaving heaven and coming down the mountain, as it were, to live the perfect life that we could never live. 
And then God himself climbs the mountain, the hill called Calvary, where he bleeds and dies for the sins of humanity that forms the bridge between God and man. So it starts with God and not with men. He is the way. He didn't just show the way. He is the way. Somebody say amen. He's also the truth. He doesn't just point to the truth. He doesn't just tell the truth or represent the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Now, again, this causes some of us to bristle some of our postmodern sensibilities in this society, perhaps. Why? Because truth has become pliable in our modern culture. It's, it's relative. It's subjective. Everyone seems to have their own version of the truth. And perhaps you've even heard people say, hey, you speak your truth. That's a common thing that we say. Hey, do you. That's your truth, and you live your truth. And again, the problem with that is <laughs> it just ignores reality. Certain things are true whether or not you agree with their reality. That makes sense, right? <laughs> so regardless of whether or not you believe in gravity, it's going to affect your life. And you might say, hey, I think I can fly like the birds up there. And my truth is I'm light as a bird and I have arms that work like wings. And you can jump out of a plane and you're going to be greeted with the reality of gravity. <laughs> two plus two equals four, whether or not you feel like it should. Both of those things are objective facts grounded in reality. doesn't matter how you feel about them. And so too with Jesus. He is the truth. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus found himself in the middle of a brief conversation with none other than Pilate himself. And the, the, at the center of this conversation was the subject of truth. And Jesus was talking about the truth. And while he was still talking, Pilate cut him off and rhetorically quipped, truth, what is truth? And he didn't wait around for an answer. I wish he had. <laughs> because at that very moment, he was standing in front of truth personified. In a world full of vagueness and ambiguity, Jesus gives us the truth. His word is tried and true. It has been tested on the anvil of time for the last 2,000 years, and yet they haven't been able to do away with it. Why? Because his words are true. His promises are true. What he said about heaven and hell is, and death and life and sin and righteousness, it's all true, and it bears out in our lives. So when he says something, you can trust it. You can take it to the bank. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. And he's also the life. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I am the life, Jesus said. Now, the Greek word translated life there is the Greek word zoe. Some of you are familiar with this. And it speaks of life on a spiritual plane. It's the highest plane of living. There are two additional Greek words that get translated as life. They are the words bios and suke. Bios refers to biological life. Suke refers to your internal life, your, your soul, your psychology. Now, every person who's been born possesses a suke and has bios. We have a soul, we possess a body, but only Jesus can give real life or zoe. You see, life apart from Jesus, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, then that's merely existence. And Jesus came by his own 
words. He said he came so that we might have zoe, that we might experience life on the highest plane, that we might have life abundantly, John 10, 10. And this is God's desire for every person in here. And you'll never experience this life apart from him. He says, no man comes to the Father. You're never going to get to God, in other words, unless you come through me. He is the only way. People, again, often complain about this part of Christianity. They claim that it's too narrow. It's too exclusive. And on that point, I guess I'd have to agree with them. Christianity is narrow. In fact, it's so narrow that you can't get to the Father unless you come through Jesus. That's not me talking. That's Jesus talking. He talked about a broad road with many on it that leads to destruction and a narrow road, by contrast, with few on it that leads to everlasting life. So the only way you'll get to heaven is through putting your faith in Jesus tonight and his sacrificial death on the cross. But I want to add this. If the gospel is narrow, it's also a broad, broad invitation. You see, the Bible says it like this. This is Romans 10, 13, and I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gospel is narrow, but the invitation is broad. How broad? It's so broad that it includes the whole world. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. It's broad in its scope, but it's also easy in its application. All anybody has to do is call on the name of the Lord. You don't have to climb the highest mountain or memorize books of the Bible or make a pilgrimage to some holy site or live a perfect life. All you have to do tonight is call on the name of the Lord and you and your family will be saved. That's what Paul said. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you and your house shall be saved. The thief on the cross illustrates this point wonderfully, right? Because he didn't live a perfect life. He was a wicked guy. He was literally being crucified for his crimes against society. And so he's there, and he's pinned to the tree next to Jesus, and he's stricken in his conscience. And although he didn't live a good life or get baptized or attend church or go to confirmation or any of the other things we might associate with good Christian living, what he did do is with his dying breath, turn to Jesus and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it was enough. Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Just nine words he uttered. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Nine words is all it took for Jesus to welcome him. And if you will call on the name of the Lord tonight, then you too can be saved. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And your, your, your whole past will be done away with. And you'll be brought into this glorious family called the body of Christ, where Jesus becomes your big brother. And God, your father, is up in heaven. And the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And he empowers you to live the victorious Christian life. That is the reality of what's being offered to all of us tonight. And Jesus says this to Thomas. And then he says this in verse 7, if you really know me, you'll know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip, now, now it's Philip's turn to interrupt the Lord. He said, Lord, just show us the father and that'll be enough for us. You see, Jesus was always talking about his father. It was practically his favorite subject. He just finished telling them that he had come from his father, that he was going back to his father's house. 
He said that he only did the things he saw his father do and said the things he heard his father say. He also taught his disciples that they were to, in turn, address their prayers to our Father who's in heaven. So they were well-versed in this idea of the Father. And, and Philip had heard Jesus talk so much about the Father at this point that he says, Lord, it's enough. Just show us the Father. And by the way, I think this is really, when you get down to it, the heart cry of every true believer. Oh, I want to see the glory of God. It's the same prayer that David had a thousand years before Philip made this request of Jesus. David made a similar plea in one of his Psalms when he wrote this. This is Psalm 27. For let's go ahead and read this one together out loud as well. He said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David says, oh, the one thing I want more than anything else is to behold the beauty of the Lord. I want to see the glory of God. So it was Philip's desire. It was David's desire. But then four centuries before David, it was also Moses' desire. He made his own request to see God's glory. And you can read about it there in Exodus chapter 33. He actually made two requests of God in that chapter. He says, Lord, show me your ways. What a beautiful prayer. He says in, in another psalm that the, the children of Israel were familiar with God's works, but Moses knew his ways. And I don't want to just see God's work in the world around me, but I want to know his ways. I want to be familiar, as it were, with his moods. I want to know his heart so I can move in lockstep with what he's doing. Show me your ways. And then he says, show me your glory. And the Lord essentially tells Moses, no man can see my glory and live, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll hide you here in the cleft of this rock, and they'll cause all my goodness to pass before you, and then I'll declare my name, and then as I've passed by, I'll allow you to see kind of the, the chemtrails or the afterglow of my glory. And so Moses gets tucked in there in the cracks and crags of this rock edifice, and God covers him with his hand, and he passes before him, and he declares his name. And then it's enough so that when he, he just cracks his fingers for just a moment, and Moses takes in the glory of the Lord. And he comes back down, and his face is glowing with the radiance of the expression of God's glory for weeks, to the point where people are like, whoa, Moses you got to put a bag over your head or something. We can't handle the brightness of the glory. And by the way, on that point, I just want to make this point of application. Oftentimes, we're looking for the Lord to show up in our lives, like Philip, like David, like Moses. And yet, similar to Moses, I find in my own story, at least, that oftentimes it's not until he's passed by that I'm able to see the after effects of his goodness in my life and I think I know why. I think it's like in the moment, he's hiding me. He's protecting me. He's seating me on the rock so that as I look back, I see God's fingerprints on my story. I see his glory as it passes by, just as Moses did. His goodness is all over your life, just like it was for Moses. Amen? Amen. And so Jesus answered, this is Philip's request. Show us the Father. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me 
has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So Jesus here talks about the revelation of the Father, and he makes a rather astounding claim. In no uncertain terms, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Philip, when you look at me, you're seeing the face of God. You see, Jesus didn't just provide us with a reflection of God, a glimpse or a window into his heart. He fully revealed the Father's heart. Why? Because he and the Father are one in essence. No mere man would ever dare to make such a bold claim. But Jesus did. And he backed it up, not only through his words, but also his works. And the disciples came to believe in this. In the opening chapter of his gospel, John wrote this. This is John 1.18. Let's read this together out loud. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus' whole mission in coming to this earth was to make the Father known. And by the way, the Greek word that gets translated there as make him known, it's the same word from which we get our word exegete from. It's to pull out or extrapolate the meaning of something. It means to fully reveal. In other words, Jesus fully revealed the Father's heart. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it like this. He calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Not a likeness, not a chip off the old block, but rather the exact representation of his nature. In other words, what a ray of light is in relation to the sun, Jesus is to God. He isn't just God-like. He isn't just godly. He is God, which means before he ever made his humble entrance as a baby, who was cradled in Mary and Joseph's arms there in Bethlehem. Before he made that entrance, he was God, a very God. He existed from eternity past in glorious, resplendent, unapproachable light. And this is something that settled on the disciples over time and continued to astound them even decades after the Lord ascended back into heaven. John, in his first epistle, he, he's thinking of a way to, to launch his, his letter that he's writing to the church. And he came up with this. This is how he begins his epistle. This is 1 John 1 and 2. It's not in your notes, but just listen. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He says, we saw him. We handled him. We beheld the Lord of glory, and we testify that he was with the Father, and he was one with God, and he appeared to us. Now, what does all this mean for us? Simply this. If you want to know what God is like, Look at Jesus. If you want to know what God's heart is towards sinners, 
Look at Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about the lost, look at Jesus. If you want to know what he thinks about the poor and the lonely and the destitute, look at Jesus. Everything you want to know about God, you learn by studying Jesus. And so in my own life, I can tell you that the longer I spend looking at Jesus, the clearer my understanding of who God is and what he's like becomes. And yet, I have to confess to you that while that picture has become immeasurably more clear as I stare at Jesus, behold Jesus, as I lock eyes with Jesus, it's still as though I'm looking at a foggy mirror. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? The picture is still a little fuzzy. It's like, you know, when you take a shower in the morning and the mirror gets fogged up and you have to... And you try to get your image back, but all you see is the condensation that's developed on the mirror. I don't know if you felt like that, but I feel like that. Lord, I still, there's more that I want to see, more that I want to experience. And Paul had that same longing in his heart, and he talked about it in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He said, for now, it's like we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. He said, now I know in part but then I shall know even as I'm known. Listen, friends, I get it. It's hard. And we walk by faith, not by sight. But there is a day coming when it won't be through the dark glass. It won't be through the foggy mirror, but it will be face to face. And you're going to see the Lord. And that day is soon approaching. And that's what Jesus promises Philip here. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And one day soon, we're going to see Jesus. Praise the Lord. And he finishes here in verses 12 through 14, talking about this greater life. And I, I, I just, these verses are astounding. I feel like we're on holy, hallowed ground as we read these verses. But read them with me. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Why? Because I am going to the Father. And I will do, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. Again, he says, you may ask anything in my name, and I will do it. Jesus is here talking about the greater life. And he makes here two incredible promises to his disciples and us by extension. And the first thing that I want you to note that he says here is that we will do greater works than he did. Now, this should cause you to marvel. What do you mean? Greater works than Jesus. Now, let's start by examining who was this promise made to. It says, whoever believes in me. You believe in Jesus? Raise your hand if you do. He's talking to you. He's talking to us. So now we know who qualifies for this promise. Now let's look at the promise itself. He says that he wants to do greater works through us. So let's dig into that. What did Jesus mean by greater? I mean, did he mean perhaps greater in number or quantity? Why? Because there's so many more of us. And we might be tempted to think that initially. But I've dug into this word. And it speaks not only of greater in quantity, but specifically, it's talking about greater in quality. There's a different Greek word that Jesus could have used that would have referred to quantity, but he chose instead the word that talks to, and it talks about and is tied to this idea of 
greater in effect and quality. Now, what are we to make of that? Well, I think for the face value of it is that Jesus expects that we as his followers would walk in greater works than he did. Now, the first century Christians give us a glimpse of what this greater life can look like. You see, they walked in power. They walked in the spirit. They walked in the anointing of the Lord. And and so there's that one story in the Gospels where the woman reaches out and grabs hold of the hem of Jesus' garment, and she's healed. You remember that story? Then you fast forward to the book of Acts, and people are taking just the sweat rags of Paul, and they're carrying them to the sick and laying them on the sick, and they're being healed by that. That's greater. And then there's the stories of Peter just walking down the street, and just his shadow passing over people heals them. That's greater. And the key to experiencing this greater life that Jesus talks about here is understanding that how he did life, the manner in which he lived, is the same way in which he expects us to live. And this desire to be like, whoa, we, we like... We kind of resist this notion that he wants us to walk in greater works, and we think, well, we got to protect him, but you don't protect his glory by denying what he says. Does that make sense? And so when we look at Jesus and the way that he did life, he did life as a spirit-filled man. I think our tendency is to read the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels and think, yeah, of course he did that stuff. He's God, which he is. But what we often neglect or forget is that while he was on earth, he chose to divest himself of his divine prerogatives. Philippians 2 talks about this, how though he was God and thought it not robbery to be considered equal with God, he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. In other words, he lived life as a man. He never stopped being God, but what he did do is live as a spirit-filled man. And that's important because if every time Jesus performed a miracle, he was simply acting out of his divine nature, then it would be easy to write off. But if, on the other hand, every time he walks in the miraculous, he's functioning as a spirit-directed, spirit-filled man, then his life becomes the model and the standard for what is possible for the person who lives in complete dependence on the Father. Now, this is huge. (laughs) What is the Christian life supposed to look like? In a word, Jesus. That's the expectation, and that's the mandate, that's the mission, that's the calling. We're to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, move in the miraculous like Jesus. Now, I've used this illustration before, but I want to use it again here because I think it just drives home this point so well. Let's say you had 100 two-by-fours, and each one is like 10 or 12 feet long, and you want to cut 100 boards that are six feet in length. And so you start by taking out your tape measure, and you measure the first one to six feet, and you mark it, and you cut it. Now you've got a six-foot board. Now let's say instead of taking the tape measure out and using it to measure the next board, let's just say you take that first board and you lay that on top of the next board and you mark it with your pencil and you cut that. And then you do the same thing. You take the next board and lay it on top of the third one and the fourth and so on until you get through 100 boards. Now you'd be surprised, but did you know that by the time you got to the 100th board by doing it this way, your last board would be over seven feet in length? It would look nothing like the original. Why? 
Because with each board, you have to take into account the width of the pencil and the thickness of the blade. And by using that other board, instead of going back to the original standard, you're getting further and further and further away from your original mark. And I think to an extent that maybe is what's happened with the church. Instead of measuring ourselves against Jesus and saying, Lord, what does it look like to walk in relationship with you? What does it look like to be carried by your spirit, to be directed by your heart, to be moving in lockstep with your will? We compare ourselves with ourselves, and because of that, we've ended up looking like Jesus and more like each other. The point is, we were made for the miraculous. You were designed for answers to prayer. God wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to know his will. He wants you to move in power. It's it's the normal Christian life. It's the way God designed things to work. And when you say, why would he want that? He tells us why. So that the world will know that he has gone to the Father and that we belong to him. And he backs this up in verses 13 and 14 by saying, so do ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Why? So that my Father in heaven might be glorified. And it's so staggering in its implications that he repeats himself. Again, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. In the Old Testament, the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream one night after he dedicates the temple. You remember this story? And he comes to him, and he basically gives him a blank check. He says, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. It's yours. And he asks for wisdom, and, and we know how the story goes from there. And that's kind of the, the high water mark in the Old Testament as it pertains to prayer. But consider this. In the New Testament, Jesus issues a similar promise or invitation to every believer every day. Now, thankfully... He reserves the right to say no to our requests whenever they violate our own purpose or undermine his agenda and glory. Praise God that he holds the veto card on the dumb prayers that we often pray. Amen. (laughs) And so this is not just like a blank check so that you can get the big house and the fancy car and all the rest. God says he knows that's not going to be good for you. And so he's going to deny any request that doesn't bring him glory or you good. But it doesn't change the fact that he wants us to ask. He says, ask. And so let me ask you this question. Does the size of your prayers reflect the size of your God? I was so convicted by that question as I was studying this this past week. You see, big prayers honor our big God. In fact, I've heard it said like this. If your requests aren't so big that they intimidate you, then they probably insult God. Why? Because when you look at how God works and how God wants to work in the lives of his people, he always goes bigger. He always goes beyond. Paul put it like this in his prayer there at the end of Ephesians 3. Let's read this one together out loud. He said, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is at work within us. We need to raise the bar, raise the level of our expectations. We need to ask big things of our big God. It's my conviction that God wants to do so much more in this church, 
in your, in your life, in your community, in your home. He wants to do more than you're experiencing. There is a greater work that he's called you to. There is greater power that he wants you to walk in. It's the same power that was at work in his son, Jesus, when God raised him from the dead. He wants to do that work in you. But the thing about it is, is he won't work independently from us. He's waiting for partners. His eyes are scanning the globe, looking for those whose hearts are towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. God wants to work through us, church. There is a world out there that desperately needs the message, the hope, the peace, the joy that comes through the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And we have the truth. We've found the way. More, more accurately, the way has found us. In fact, the early followers of Jesus weren't called Christians. They were called followers of the way. And as we walk this way of Jesus, as we hold on to the truth of Jesus, as we exhibit the life of Jesus flowing in us, flowing through us, the world can't help but wonder. They'll stop and stare because there's something so radically different about us. Church, there's supposed to be something different about us. We're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to look different. We're we owe the world answers to prayer. Why? Because it glorifies our Father who's in heaven. It lets them know that we have a good dad who loves to respond to the prayers of his kids. Amen? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.